I was sorry to miss uh, spending time with you last week. I was on vacation for spring break, and as it happened, we were in town last weekend and were planning to come to church, but my children were sick, and so we stayed home to take care of them instead. And I, I say that not merely to excuse my absence last week, but also to gain brownie points for uh, having skipped church to take care of my children. I, I just thought you should know that. <clears throat> in, in not being here last week, I wasn't able to hear Eric uh, talk about Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, and it's a little too bad because these, these are two pieces, uh, two questions that are asked. In Romans uh, chapter 3, in, in verse 1, it says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what advantage has circumcision? Is, is there any advantage to being Jewish? Right? He, Paul is writing to two different people in one church. The, some of them grew up Jewish. They grew up in the church knowing that they were God's people and having the Scriptures. The others were Gentiles who came in and are just finding out now about who uh, God is and about this Jesus thing. And he's writing to both of them and talking about sin and talking about Jesus. And, and as he writes to them, he says, then what is the advantage? Or what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So last week, there's, there's questions that are asked about that, but the primary question is this. Is there an advantage to having grown up with the heritage and the knowledge and the family of knowing who God is? And he says, oh, absolutely, there is great advantage. There's great advantage to having the Scriptures. There's great advantage to knowing who God is. There's definitely advantage there. Now, then, we jump to verse 9, and this is where we're going to pick it up today. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now, having uh, gone through verses 1 through 8 and read this stuff about the advantage that, that the Jew has in being Jewish and having this heritage and growing up at, in our context in the church, Right? It, is there an advantage to growing up in the church? Yeah. Huge advantage to growing up in the church. Huge advantage to learning the Bible stories when you're young and singing the songs and coming and giving, having the practices of, of spending time with God and devoting time to God and being taught from an early age what it means to depend on Him and who He is. Reading His Word. There's, there's huge advantage to that. But sometimes, sometimes we think, well, I grew up in the church, so I'm good. Right? Or, or we have the expectation and hope that my kids are growing up in the church, so they'll be fine. Right? You ever thought that? Oh, I know all the answers. 
I grew up going to Bible study. I grew up going to Sunday school. I know all the answers. You can ask me anything, and I'd be happy to to tell you what the answer is. My kids always. I mean, we we read the Bible after dinner, and then we ask a question, and they all the hands go up. They all want to. Know, oh, yeah, I know the answer. I know the answer. Even Nathaniel, he's too. His hands up. I try and start with somebody else because he's just going to repeat what they say anyway. What's your answer? Jesus? Yep, that's right. It was God. God did it. Yep, that's pretty much right every time. There's huge advantage to that, to growing up in the church. But, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And this is where, where the confusion comes in. Yes, there's huge advantage, but you're no better off. You're no better off. What does that mean? How can you have an advantage and not be better off? It seems to me like if I have an advantage, I should be better off, right? If, if we're going to run a 100-meter race, and I, I start at the 50-meter line, and you start at the starting line, I have an advantage. I'm better off. But here he's saying, no, 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 no. You did have an advantage, but you're not better off. You're not better off. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everybody. Everybody is sinful. Everybody is sinful. There is no one who is righteous. No. Not even one. This flies in the face of the cultural pressure that we have to accept everyone as being without sin. Right? There's there's pressure on us that we should accept people for whoever and whatever they are. We should just accept that. Accept them. No, that's not sin. A mistake, perhaps but not sin. And while it may have been a mistake for you, it may not be a mistake for, for me. It, we just, we'll just take it on a case-by-case issue, whether or not I'm doing it or you're doing it. And with that kind of pressure around us to have this, this said, none is righteous, no, not one. We go, wait, whoa, whoa, time out, time out. Nobody? I know some really good people. I know some amazing people. People who are really good parents. People who sacrifice to take care of their kids. They're generous. They're kind. They're hospitable. They serve in the local school. I know some really good people. What do you mean there isn't anybody? How can you say something like, no one understands, no, uh, none is righteous, no, not one? No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have been, become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How can you say that? 
I know people who do good. I know people who are outside the church who do lots of great stuff. But what he's saying is sin is everywhere. It's everywhere. We are completely hopeless. You see, I I think that sin is more pervasive than we want to acknowledge or recognize. It impacts us more deeply than we want to admit. Or even that we notice all of the ways in which it affects us. We, we would like to think, no, there's, there's good stuff happening out there. People doing good things, I'm doing good things, you're doing, there's, there's people in here who are good. And in fact, the Jews who would be reading this would be troubled by this. Because they were confident they were doing good. Not only were they special because they were God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham who had been given the law, but also they were doing it. They were doing it. And so when Paul starts quoting all of these different things, because these are all quotes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And it continues on and on. He's quoting and quoting and quoting and quoting. He's quoting from the Psalms. He's quoting from Ecclesiastes. He's quoting quoting from Proverbs. He's quoting from Isaiah. It's just a string of quotations. Let me read to you uh, Psalm 14. Because this is in part where where he gets this from. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is typical of the places that he's quoting from. And the Jews are reading this going, whoa, whoa, Paul, time out. You're taking that out of context. You're taking that out of context. Because we know that when Psalm 14 is talking about those people who are not righteous, no, not even one, he's not talking about us. He's not talking about us. We're God's people. We are the righteous ones. He's talking about the enemies of God's people. The ones who are against us. In fact, in part, he's talking about it because they're against us. He's not talking about us here. Paul's going, no, 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 no. He's talking about you too. 
You who grew up in the church. You who grew up with the law. You who grew up knowing all of these things from the beginning. Whose parents were raising you. You're just like the people out there. Yes, I I recognize that he comes down here and says, um, Have they no knowledge all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? But recognize that you are foolish also. Your deeds are corrupt. And when it says in verse 2 that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand or who after or seek after God, the response is they have all turned aside and together have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It's not like he looked down and went, okay, I'm just going to look at half of you. I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look at the ones in the church. I'm just going to look in over here and see if there are any who do good. Nope, not a one. He looked at all of them and went, there is no one who does good. Not even one. But what about this advantage? I thought we had an advantage. Yeah, you did have an advantage. You knew that you were sinful. You knew you were breaking the law. Remember back from chapter 1 when it talked about um, all of the ways in which people should know that though they know God, they did not acknowledge Him as God but replaced Him? You did know about God. You just still sinned. It's everywhere. Sin, sin is just all over us. So that in verse 13, it begins to describe the different ways in which people sin. And the total uh, pervasiveness of this. People are completely depraved. There, there's, there's nothing good about them. Look, verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Notice, notice the different body parts that he uses, right? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Just, just in those two verses, we have four references to ways in which we speak, right? Throat and mouth and lips and, uh, missed one, tongues. To the way that we speak. I mean, there, there are lots and lots of ways to sin. We'll get into a couple of other ones. But the way we use our words, that's a huge one. We, we use our, our mouths to, to lie to each other. We use our, our words to, to tear people down, to attack them, to belittle them, to demean them, to insult them, to curse them. The tongue is a dangerous weapon.
Some of us have, have more of a problem with that than others, but let me just say we all have a problem with that. We, we try and tame the tongue. We try and, and bridle it, keep it under control. We talk about biting our tongue. But the way that we use words, sometimes it's really obvious. You just knew, after, that, after you were finished with that conversation, you just knew, oh man, I ripped them apart in ways I should not have. Other times it's a little less obvious. They really needed to hear that from me. It was really for their own good. But the tone that we used, the way that we said it, completely inappropriate. And those are the overt, really obvious ones that everybody acknowledges. Oh yeah, that's sin in the way that we use our tongue, in the way that we speak to other people in hurtful ways. But we use our tongues in much worse ways than that. We use our tongues to boast. To talk about the great things that we have done. It acknowledges the pride that is within us and diminishes our great God. It makes it sound as though we are doing the good. We are doing the things that should be done and undercuts God's glory because it doesn't give Him the thanks that He's due. It doesn't acknowledge Him. And so some proud, boastful person will talk, stand up in front of you and tell you about how great it was that they didn't come to church last week because they were taking care of their kids. Wasn't that wonderful? And I use it by way of illustration almost entirely. But isn't there a part of us when we talk about these things, that says, I'm doing it. It's me. It's me. I'm doing it. It's the good that's within me. It's just who I am. God must be so pleased with me. I, I one time, this was several years ago, was driving down the freeway and I saw a woman with a flat tire also driving down the freeway. And I didn't think that was safe for her or good for her vehicle and so I waved at her. And I somehow convinced her that I wasn't a crazy person and that she should pull over. And so she pulled over and I pulled over behind her and I came up and I, I said, I, I want you to know you have a flat tire, you should get that taken care of. And so I helped her, I, I helped her get to a gas station, we got her tire pumped up so that she could get to a place where she could get her tire repaired. And I was telling her that I was doing this because God loved her. And she, obviously unimpressed, turns to me and goes, well, I guess you got your gold star for today. What? I didn't, I didn't get a gold star. I wouldn't get a gold star unless you became a Christian. (laughs) 
I was just hoping that this would be a conversation starter. (laughs) And afterwards, I'm thinking about the way that I use my tongue and the way that I act. And gosh, sin is pervasive in me. That as a good Samaritan trying to help somebody, my pride and sin is trying to do things that will please God because I think that somehow that's going to earn His favor or earn me gold stars. And how offended I was that she called me on it. (laughs) None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Look at the direction that they're headed. Where are their feet pointed? Where is the path headed that they're on? Which way are you going? Where would your actions end you up? Well, depends on the day. Today, so far, I'm doing pretty good. I got up, made it to church. But other days, my feet are pointed the wrong way. They're just, I'm just headed for trouble. I'm going that way. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And this, I think, is the greatest one. For all of our actions, for all of our deeds, we recognize that sometimes the way that we treat other people is not appropriate. But so often, we miss God. And he puts this as as the way that we're using our eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Do we really know who God is? Are we aware of that, cognizant of it, as we're living our day and, and, and moving through the different parts of the day? How often would we do things differently if we had the fear of God before us? We, we used to wear bracelets, right? WWJD. What would Jesus do? So that when you reached out to grab that thing that you'd see, what would Jesus, would he grab this thing? Uh... No, probably not. 
What would Jesus, would Jesus watch this? Would Jesus go there? Would Jesus say that? And even in that, we make it about us, right? Would Jesus do it? Then I should do it. Would Jesus not do it? Then I shouldn't do it. As though Jesus' whole purpose was to be this great example for us that we might just live and do everything exactly like Jesus would. It'd be wonderful if we did that. But we can still miss the fear of God before our eyes. That God is right there. Who is He and what are we doing? Are we acknowledging Him in the things that we say, in the things that we do, in the things that we read, in the things that we watch? There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now we, now we know this. That whatever the law says, we, we know these things, right? We know what we should watch. We know what we should say. We know what we should do because we have the Word of God. This is our huge advantage. We know all of this stuff. So congratulations. You know what you're supposed to do. And you're still not doing it. Which is why we have this great advantage, we're just no better off. Because it is not the law, it is not the instruction that saves us. It is the law and the instruction that points out the discrepancy between what we should be doing and what we are doing. That's our challenge. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I love this picture that every mouth may be stopped. When scripture uses this, every mouth being stopped, it, it, it's this, um, there's nothing that I can say in this situation. I might have otherwise been speaking uh, as though I knew something. I might be boasting or talking about um, myself in some way. But standing in light of who God is, I'm just going to have to shut up. Because there's nothing I can say. As I was reading this, it reminded me of something that I, I read about the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, some of you know uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Star player. The Greek freak, he's amazing. <clears throat> His coach is Jason Kidd. And, and he didn't really know who Jason Kidd was. I don't know how you be, become a star basketball player and um, are a player for a coach that you don't really know who he is. But he decided after he got benched that he would find out. The first time he was in a game, the coach benches him and he's like, you benched me? Serious? Do you, do you know who, who is this guy? Who does this guy think he is who's benching me? And this is what he says. I was like, let's see who this guy, what this guy did in his career anyway. 
So he called up kids' bio on his phone, and it says, I saw Rookie of the Year, NBA Championship, USA Olympic Gold Medal, second in assists, fifth in made threes, blah, blah, blah. I was like, how can I compete with that? I better zip it. (laughs) And that's a star basketball player with reference to another star basketball player. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, we are not stars. We are not amazing. And in light of Almighty God, who is perfect and holy and creator of the universe, our mouths have to be stopped. What am I going to say? There's nothing that I'm going to say that's going to impress him or make him want to hang out with me. God, you know what I did? I flagged down a woman on the freeway. Don't you want to be my friend? Wasn't that great, God? I took care of my kids when I was sick. Aren't I amazing, God? Oh, Travis. Our mouths are stopped. What can we say other than, God, I am so sorry for my sin. In light of your holiness, I am so sorry that I do not give you the glory and honor that you are due. Will you forgive me and seek after a Savior? that the whole, every mouth may be stopped, that the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We have the Scriptures. We know what we're supposed to do, but it is not by the works of the Scriptures, by acting well, that we will be justified in God's sight. Because it's through the law that comes knowledge of sin. If I'm driving down the road and I don't know what the speed limit is, I have to guess. And I'm pretty sure it's 80 miles an hour. <laughs> if I get pulled over and I was going too fast and there were, I didn't see any signs, I don't know what the speed limit was. Do you know how fast you're going? It doesn't really matter. I don't know how fast I'm supposed to be going. You're in trouble either way. But if you know how fast you're supposed to be, oh, 35. 25 on weekdays because it's a school zone. Huh, I thought it was 80. No, you, you knew. You saw the sign and yet still sinned. And are accountable for that. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the scripture comes knowledge of sin. We begin to know and understand who God is and recognize our own depravity and how awful we are. The use of our hands, the use of our mouths, the use of our eyes, the use of our feet, the use of our time and relationships and everything that we do and we begin to say, oh my, even in the 
best stuff that I do, I am so selfish and self-focused. It just highlights for us our great need. And that's such a huge advantage. Because we know. We know the problem. That's not to say no single act that anybody ever does is good. Good stuff happens. People do good things. It just doesn't count. It just doesn't mean anything before God. It doesn't justify you before God. You can do things that everybody agrees, yep, that's a good thing to do, but it's not going to justify you before God. The purpose of the law is that it highlights and reveals to us our sin so that we might come to God and say, God, I acknowledge I am foolish and sinful. Would you save me from my sin? And the best news of all is that He has already provided a way for that. He gives us these things so that we might see our sin within us and He already has given us His Son who died on the cross. And He said, you know what? Yeah, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. My Son has died for you. All that you deserve because of your sin, I've put on My Son. so that you might be righteous before me. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of who my son is. Can I encourage us this week to be quick to repent? I don't have an expectation that you're going to be perfect this week. It's unrealistic. Sin is too pervasive. But recognize it. Acknowledge it. Repent of it. And ask, God, would you forgive me? Because when we come to Him humbly like that, He does amazing things. Let's praise Him for that. Our Father in Heaven, we are grateful for Your love for us. That you loved us so much you sent your son to die in our place on the cross. And Lord, there are times that we are tempted to believe that we are sufficient as we are. That if we look deep within us, we will find good somehow. We want to believe that and yet, Father, it's not true. And so help us to believe that even though we are sinful... We can be righteous in your sight because you have given your Son for us. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of justice and a God of mercy and grace. Would you show to us the depravity of our sin nature so that we might all the more appreciate your mercy and grace this week. And we ask for this in your Son's name. Amen.